Hello, hello. Come one, come all to our hashtag racing family show. Hello, hello. Welcome all. Come on in. Everybody filter in, say hello, wave, uh, do the centipede, do something. Happy to have y'all here. Adam Klinger, great to see you. Jamie Carr, great to see you. Hopefully we will even have our Jamie Carr. How you doing? Throw up some hands if you can hear me. Say hello, y'all. Just waiting on our co-host, Chris Wheeler. Hopefully hopefully we will get some co-hosting going on here. We're sending an invite. Christopher Wheeler, say hello. Hopefully you can hear me. Flapping my gums. Mr. Wheeler, just accept, and then we are off and rocking. Hey, he's a speaker. How you doing, brother? What's up, Marshall? What's up, group? How are you guys? Well, everybody say hello. We're supposed to have our man, my old pal, a former driver of mine, Joey Hand. Going to have our pal Bob Varsha joining in. Going to talk some NASCAR at Coda. We were you know, going. What happens? What happens from this point on in my night doesn't matter, Marshall, because Bob Mercer retweeted me. <laughs> uh, and what else? We'll talk about IndyCar testing today. Brand new 2024 engines turning their very first laps on the Indianapolis Motor Speedway road course. So uh, I see we got our pal Peter Habicht here, F1 in America. Peter, we're going to be talking about Saudi Arabia, Formula One. And, uh, uh, yeah, uh, maybe not the most optimal, uh, event, uh, that comes to recent memory. Uh, I was texting with a friend of mine who works for a team and he was sharing some interesting insights about, uh, his presence there and whether he actually truly had any choice on being there. Mr. Wheeler, why don't you take the, uh, the comms here for a little bit? I'm going to send a link to uh, Mr. Hand, who said he would be. He already has the link, but I'm going to try and get Joey Hand all set up here and tweet out a little promo. Awesome. Thanks, Marshall. Yeah, I actually just finished at the ice cream parlor. One Mr. Will Power flew into town today to uh, do some testing with the next era of Indy car engines here in Indy. And uh, got some sushi, a little bit of ice cream. And, of course, it's 40 degrees outside, so complete heat wave. Um, but, yeah, definitely interesting stuff. You know, obviously, we're going to talk to Joey a little bit more in depth about the Coda Cup race. Um, it's a sore subject for me. I am I am, whew, I am, so anti-stage racing on road courses. Um, probably plate races, too. Um, and I get it, right? I mean, I, the mile-and-a-half stuff, it is what it is. But for me, I'm still, I guess, a more of an authentic road racing kind of guy. I tend to think that, you know, a a road race is you go green and then here's your distance and, you know, the fastest guy. And I felt so bad for Daniel Suarez. Um, The guy put on a beautiful job in qualifying, had drove a beautiful first stint, and then he got suckered into playing politics in the first stop. Stage points, track position, you know, what do you do? He got buried and then, you know, it was going to be a 50-50 toss-up if he made it out of turn one. Sure enough, he didn't. Um, but I am really pumped for Justin Marks and the track house group, Ross Chastain. He, uh, I'm trying to remember the year. It would have been the 2016 
2016, Marshall was the year uh, at the Brickyard 400, and I was working for Bell Helmets. And some guy in what looked to be a starting park driver of some Xfinity team came into the Bell Helmets garage and was like, hey, man, can you fix my helmet? And I was like, uh, sure, I'm Chris, bring it in. And this thing was probably eight years old at the time. The internal padding was falling out of it. He's like, can you just, like, tape this up or something? My name's Ross Chastain. And I was like, man, you're, you seem like a nice kid. And he really was a really humble kid. And so I fixed up his helmet the best I could, and then I got him on a deal after that to get him something new. But I'll never forget standing there in, in, in the garage area at the Speedway outside the Bell Garage. And sure enough, like, I, I look in the garage, and I see this helmet still sitting there. And I thought oh, maybe he had another one, so he's not worried about it. Right. I step outside the garage, the national anthem's playing. And as the anthem's playing, I look down Gaston Alley and this kid who looks two days out of high school is running as fast as he can, trying to hold on to his radio and his headset in a suit that's older than him. And he's, do you have Ross's in the car to get ready for the race and forgot that he had left the helmet in the garage. And so (laughs) I, I was so happy for Ross Chastain, man. Like, I mean, look, you know, I'm a Dinger guy. Um, I got the spot with him and win the overall Daytona, um, the 50th with Shank. And, you know, the way that race ended, I think, is just how NASCAR racing is as a thing, and unfortunately. But I was so happy for Austin and Justin Marks. Like, it's very rare that I find somebody in motorsports that I trust with everything in my possession and would lead to clean plastic, you know, crap houses if that's what he told me we were going to go do. And, and I trust Justin Marks to that level. So, for that whole group, that was pretty cool. But, you know, we have a new guest here, Marshall, and I spent no less than half my race yesterday watching this band's onboard camera on my phone and not the TV broadcast because I was so excited to watch his racecraft. And so, Joey Han, welcome to the show, buddy. Hey, guys. You got me? Wow, no, driver. you sound great, Joey Han. This is my first Twitter thing. First Twitter <laughs> spaces thing. Well, yeah, it's my first time. Well, it was until, great to until see this you. this morning, I didn't even know it was a thing. So, Well, it was great to see you, though, doing Joey Hand things until late in the race. But why don't we start off by talking about this opportunity? Pretty cool, I would say, with Ford Performance, Ford in general, giving you lots of love. Know that you haven't done as many races as you have wanted in the last year or two. But I love the fact that Ford has said, all right. Maybe we don't have a uh, factory sports car program for you right now, talking, say, 2021, 2022. But, hey, you got a lot of knowledge that we can put to use, tune up our uh, four drivers and cup and otherwise. Let's start there, Joey, talking about this opportunity, because it's not often you get a manufacturer that says, we want you, we got you. We're just not going to be doing full-time racing with you at the moment. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, it is, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, you're right. But you know, the, the, it all goes back to how it all started with Ford with me, you know, moving over to chips deal. And then, you know, obviously, uh, the Ford GT and winning at Lamar and that just kind of, you know, that first, that big win at Lamar just kind of put me as a Ford guy. Right. And, um, you know, in those years, 2016 well from 15 to 19 really i just got close with the ford family you know i i uh had dinners with etzel and with bill and and with 
the kids, uh, Nick and Will, we hung out and we did the night before the Oscars and all this different stuff. And, um, you know, Bill and Etzel, it's, it's funny because they still fall along with my son Chase's career, uh, or his, I guess we won't say career, but his racing, um, and mama hand and me. And, you know, I get random texts about, you know, Hey, congrats on the win with chase or whatever. So, you know, that all was still happening even after the four GT thing ended. Um, and then it turned into, you know, we still would like you to be, we want you to be a Ford guy. That's, that's how it came up. We want you to still be a Ford guy in this period of time where I didn't have a deal. Um, and it basically was like, you know, how can we, how can we get you in here? And, and it started with, well, let's get you on the sim. Uh, you know, let's see if we can help these guys in road courses. Let's see if we can help develop them with the next gen car. And that turned into, let's do this next gen test, which meant let's do the Charlotte Roval last year. And it's just kind of snowballed. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I was always a big Ford fan. I'm super, super happy to be a Ford guy again. And, um, you know, I mean, it's kind of crazy. I, I've done a lot of things in kind of out of order. I'd say, you know, Marshall probably better than anybody, but you know, I didn't expect to be driving NASCAR at this point in my career, even though I was a huge, you know, as a kid, it's kind of all I want to do. Um, I didn't expect to be in DTM when I was in DTM, you know, late in my career racing in Europe, you know, there's a lot of things that have uh, kind of went in, out of order for me, but super excited to be, part of this Ford deal and helping out and doing these NASCAR races. It's, it's pretty awesome. Actually, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Like so, even mama hand, she stands, she sits in the stand. She's like, I, the, at the race, she's like, I really, it's kind of weird to see a driving NASCAR. Like it's, <laughs> it's crazy, crazy cool. So Joey, you know, we, we were talking a bit of it there when you were logging in about Coda in general. Um, I was, I was just giving my preferences on how I hate stages and road racing for NASCAR because I think it takes away from a lot. And, like, I felt bad for guys like Suarez. Um, but I, I was saying I watched a lot of the race on your onboard because I love your racecraft and your knowledge. Um, racing with Kozlowski late in the day, like, I, I, the guy couldn't get through the corner very well through the center. But, you know, he had a lot of drive off once he'd get there. Or I want to say maybe it was, like, the 42 car there for a while. And I just love watching you set these guys up well in advance and drive right by them. And just knowing with your, with your knowledge, um, has there been a lot of that kind of sharing and racecraft sharing amongst yourself and the Ford guys? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I'm, I'm thankful you're watching my onboard. Uh, thanks for all that. But it was, you know, it was uh, kind of crazy to get out there and race with these guys. Yeah. I mean, I, I was spent a lot of time around Brad it was, we were like magnets. Every time I came out of the pits, it seemed like we were right around each other. And I had just met him for the first time in the sim this week, actually. And, uh, you know, we had been talking back and forth throughout the week about, you know, lines and even during the Xfinity race on Saturday about, you know, what, what we would do and stuff. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, these guys, they had, I, I was out there running. We had, he had a little bit, you're right. He had better drive off. Um, the 42, I was in the mix with these, with him a lot. I mean, there's a lot of guys I was just kind of entangled with, but we don't talk a lot about racecraft because when I'm helping these guys, because these guys are all good, right? I mean, they're, they're good. Uh, all I try and do is, 
the guys that want my help is, you know, put them in, like, just give them little pointers here and there that I know, you know, they might already know it, but try and get them in the right place uh, on these tracks that I know a little bit better. I mean, Austin, he knows kind of like Sonoma, kind of like a lot of our American road race tracks is placement's a big deal. Um, and especially at Austin, you know, you can get the S's a little bit wrong and it hurts you all the way through the S's. You might, if you turn in early for three, you're early for seven, right? So, um, it's more about that, but, uh, it's fun to get out there and race these guys. You know, I love my, my favorite part about racing is racing. Uh, my second favorite thing is developing and I get to do both right now, but it was super fun to get out there and race. I mean, these guys race so hard from the, from the beginning. It's crazy. And, you know, you talk about the stages, uh, for me, you know, if you're out in the front and you're leading like Suarez was, I, I happened to watch the race last night when I got back to the hotel and I saw the replay of the race and I, I only made it through about half of it. If that, and I saw he checked out, I mean, in that case, you don't want a stage break, right? Because you're out in front, let's just let this thing go. Maybe I lead it start to finish. Right. But in my case, I was kind of starting from the back. Those stages kind of helped us out. We were able to pit early and then kind of make some track position there. It didn't, didn't work out in the long run because we had a problem getting in the pit lane. Um, just the timing of Bush coming out of his pit box and me coming in just, just bad timing, really. Um, you know, we just had multiple things that happened, but it's, uh, the stage breaks were good for me, to be honest. I need a little, need a little reset, get my wits about me. And, uh, you know, every time I got a little bet, a little bit better, every restart, I got a little bit better. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's, a it's totally different racing. That's for sure. Joey been fortunate to watch you at Coda in a Ford Daytona prototype, seen you there in your Ford GT now have seen you at least through television the other times in person but through television just ragging the living bleep out of your uh, rick ware ford tell us about that experience man because you're accustomed to big downforce suspension travel one and a half inches maximum uh with the prototype with the gt honestly that ford wasn't close or it wasn't far off from a prototype Tell me about the uh, the driving approach, which hasn't really been a big part of your career, of something that is lifting wheels off the ground, has miles of suspension travel, just ragging the heck out of something that moves and treats you a little bit like a, uh, a bucking Bronco. You obviously did well with it, but is that a mental adjustment that takes you a little while to, to get used to that, or do you click in pretty easily? Uh, Well, I mean, one of my things is, you know, adapting quickly. And I'm proud of that, but these things are definitely, you know, they're much, they're different than the old cup cars, right? I was able to drive the one race at Charlotte Rover last year in the old cup car and, um, definitely drive much more like a GT car, more probably of a, an, one of the GTRs of, of the older days, you know, now GT cars have so much downforce in, in IMSA, but you know, when we didn't have as much downforce, um, it's probably more similar to that. The big thing is these cars are heavy. They're just really heavy. So take a GT car and add, you know, it's like you line the, the top of the roof with lead. You have a lot more roll. Um, and so you're always chasing that, 
you know, that transition back and forth. And that's the thing you got to get used to, especially in Austin at Coda, where you're, you know, you got turn three, four, five, six, seven, all back and forth, eight, nine, even are just back and forth. And so you're, you have to really get used to that role. You have to get used to, you know, you have big power in the cup car. Um, so you always have a lot of wheel spin. So you always have that, you drive it off with, with yaw in the car, you know, always working that throttle pedal and trying to get, as everybody says, by the way, you gotta get the lingo right from NASCAR and other stuff. You gotta get that drive off. That's what we talk about now is drive. Um, <laughs> gotta get drive off, you know, but, uh, yeah, so you're always, it's, it's a little bit different, but you know, I'll tell you what, I was just talking about this today. What's a really big difference. Cause a lot of people have been texting me and, and, you know, asking how it was. And, you know, the, the difference in, in the NASCAR races that I've found is that when somebody gets to your inside in IMSA, like, let's just say from turn one to turn two at Coda, somebody gets your inside and turn two at Coda and IMSA race, it's pretty much over. Like they got you, there's marbles in the outside lane. You're not going to be able to hold it around the outside. You would not believe how every, well, I mean, you believe you watch, but there is no, there is no inside lane. I gotcha. Like, you, I put a pass on somebody into turn 20 on the last corner. I'm like side by side. You think it's over? Nope. They roll around the outside and accelerate better off off around the outside of you, and you're drag racing up the front straightaway. It's, everything is an option. Uh, because there's so much side by side racing, it actually cleans the track to two lanes, three lanes, some places. And there's, it's just a whole different style of racing. You can't just drive it in the inside and be like, oh, gotcha that passes over. No, no, no. They're coming back around the outside. They're coming down the inside and you're racing, you know, 40 people constantly. I mean, I started at the back of the pack after getting that penalty and you know, whatever 39th or 38th and every single position was tough. Like you had to get through every, I, I think I got to 18th and every single one was a tough pass, but you know, I drove around, I came off a of one, try to outside inside somebody and I'm I'm like you know normally in IMSA you would never hang around the outside turn two I hung around the outside turn two and made the pass into the S's so you gotta for me it's great I love that kind of racing it's awesome and I think that's what's great about the show of NASCAR and but you have to kind of change how you do stuff you know you don't just get to go and stuff down the inside and it's over you got to be ready for them coming from the outside and the guy who's behind you undercut you there now you're three wide you wouldn't believe how many times I hear on my radio this weekend, middle of three, sometimes you're middle of four. I heard outside of five one time in turn one. I'm like, are you kidding me? How can there be five? What five? <laughs> like I started to think it was Larson on the inside outside of five. And I'm like, that's not Larson. That's not, that's, that's, I'm like, oh, outside of five means I'm the fifth one out. So it's a, you hear, you hear different things. Let's just put it that way. You hear a lot of different things. And, in my first two cup races, Chase and I joke about it. Uh, it's like a running joke. Middle of three is kind of my thing, what I hear from my spotter, Tony Raines. Middle of three, I'm like, how can I possibly be middle of three again? I'm always middle of three. But well, it's just a, just a different way to race. You touched on the racing, and we touched a little bit ago there about some of the, the lines. Um, I don't know all the corners of Coda, but I believe it would be the last kind of right uphill into a left before you kind of start heading towards the back straightaway. 
Yeah, you... it's like eight and nine. Yeah, yeah. and I love where, where everybody's working the paint there on the right, yeah. and then and I just yeah. I, I loved it, and I was sitting there thinking, man, these guys have like nine spotters around this joint, so surely somebody's gonna tell some of these guys where Joey's getting this run from, because I would watch your car, and you are as far right as you can be in your positioning. And then you cheat your entry into the left-hander and you're back to power up over the curb and digging. And these guys are only like halfway to the paint and then still kind of making the curb and, and not running back wide off, the, of, and, off and, a nine. Yeah, yeah. And running wide. And you're just setting them up, dude. Like, Under like you're going them, yeah. bowling and like set them up, <laughs> knock them down every single time. <laughs> and I'm like, let's go. And yeah. And I think it's funny though, because you talked about how, how much racing there is there and how you're, you're always getting around you. And from watching your onboard, it reminded me of like a bunch of adults in a cadet go-kart race. Because <laughs> at, at any given moment, you would see a guy who didn't, he sat in line for four laps. And all of a sudden, two guys up, three guys up, gets a bad exit. They start to spread out. And now this guy's going to be a superhero. He's going four wide to the bottom. And you're like, yeah. well, where, where's he going? How's it? What is he doing? How That's not going to work. And sure enough, they get in there, they kind of hop around a little bit and and they all drive off the corner together, and you're like, "How? How does this work?" Yeah. It was it was mind blowing to me though. But I loved watching you set those guys up in that in that little sector. And then there was so much. Brad there was, was good. so much. Yeah, there's so much carding came back to me, especially most recently doing carding with Chase, and what we're trying to teach. You know, a lot of this carding stuff is so close now, and you run these pack races, and we constantly are talking about you know, you don't want to be the one that's being attacked, right? So if you can make a move on the guy in front of you and let him get attacked by that pack behind you because they're a hungry pack, that's what you're trying to do. And so a lot of times I was running in there and I'm like, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to try and work this guy a little slow and try and get by him. Uh, like not cautiously, but I'm going to, I'm going to just make a good move on this guy. Nothing too aggressive kind of early in the race. And then these guys run you down. I had, you know, the 22 run me down and the five while I was trying to work somebody else or even the nine. And, and you're like, well, that's not going to work because I'm the next one in line, right? I don't want to be the next one in line to be attacked. So then I made, you know, I had to make a little bit more aggressive move on the guy in front of me so that he's the one attacked. And it worked a lot of times. I mean, it's, it's, it's wild how some of the, I mean, it's, it just brings you back a little bit to your roots because in carding, you know, Again, watching Chase run these races with 60 guys in the class, you're always under attack. You go back to 30th, you're under attack. You back, you're up at first, you're under attack. That's exactly the, the game you're playing here. You're just, everybody believes they can win. Everybody's trying to make a move forward. And when you get back in that 15th to 25th spot, it gets even a little crazier, uh, obviously. So, yeah, it was, it's, you're right. I mean, there's, it's, it's just a, it's it's crazy. It's it's fun. It's crazy. Let's say a big thank you as always to our partners, Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers in TorontoMotorsports.com. Joey, so you're accustomed to being one driver in a Rolex 24 driver's meeting or Lamont 24 driver's meeting, one of 150, 200. We're also accustomed to seeing you being one of the highly revered drivers and some of the smaller uh, drivers meetings what's it like now that you've been uh, into a couple of these cup drivers meetings what's the reaction been like to folks 
know who you are? Do they know they should fear you or, or not be surprised if they get passed by you on a road course? Or were you uh, doing a little bit of under-the-radar work last weekend? Well, to be honest with you, the driver's meetings are still virtual right now. But there is a you do have a meeting right before the start of the race at these races. Um, and they get all the drivers together and they have a little talk and everybody's in the same room together and there's no PR people and there's no nothing. Um, so it is pretty small, but you know, I mean, it's not, uh, I don't know what they think, honestly, <laughs> I really don't know what they think, but you know, I think sometimes it, it I, I definitely know it's tough to come in and be a, a new guy for sure. Um, and I definitely recognize the necessity to, to get respect on my own, you know? So, um, I mean, I, you just got to keep racing these guys to earn respect. There's no way that, you know, what I've done in the past is going to be, um, good enough to, to earn respect. I mean, of course, you know, guys would be like, Oh, this guy's, you know, at least I'm just not Joe blow off the street, you know? But, um, you know, everybody's, I'll tell you, everybody's nice to me. I mean, I haven't had any issues. I mean, obviously I on track had a couple guys at the Roval that weren't necessarily happy with me. Um, got in the back of me, you know, in Charlotte last year, this week it was just straight up, you know, side to side contact. You, you're always going to have your run-ins with people, but I'll tell you, it's, um, you just gotta, you just gotta race them. And, and the big thing for me is learning who I can race, how, or how I can race who, you know what I mean? Like it's you, you spend so much time like an IMSA and you know who you're racing against. You know, if you're going down the corner with a certain guy, you know, that he's going to be aggressive or he might not be aggressive. You know, me and Andy Lally, we were on the truck together on the parade lap together after the in- driver intros. And who was it? Me and Andy Lally, my old boy, a Lally. <laughs> and I'm like, man, didn't see this coming, huh? After all these years. We can't get away from each other. I know. After all these years. I mean, this guy, this is a guy that in England, when we were doing the Team USA scholarship, I had had a huge wreck. Somebody had lost their brakes and cleaned me out, and I had a bum knee, and I was on crutches and all this, and I'm crossing the street in England. This guy, I'm about to get hit by a car, and and old A. Lally drags me off the street, and, uh, and I don't get hit by the car. And so yada 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 we go on and we race uh all these years together and i I told him i'm like you know what man riding on this truck i had my family in a truck and i'm like you're the you know we're going in this big nascar we're starting 39th and 38th and i'm like you're coincidentally you're the one guy that if somebody said who would you race side by side with uh and not have a problem with it like for a win he's the guy right like i know that with andy lally and we've done it before we did a, a very for me, a very famous race. It was just a continental challenge race at the time. Um, you know, what was, what's now Michelin pilot, but him and I ran side by side, uh, for a whole lap for the last lap to win the race. And, um, for the whole race, for the whole track at Lime Rock. I mean, that's, it's unheard of. And, uh, I ended up winning. And so he didn't, he didn't like the memory as much as I did, but still the point being, is he's one of those guys that I can run side by side with. And you just, you know that, but there's some guys you can't do that. No chance. He's going to run you in the grass and put you in the tires, whatever. And so you just, for me, it's, it's about learning, you know, who those guys are. And, you know, some of it comes with past relationships, uh, good or bad. And some comes with, you've never met him before and you have to 
race them right now and how that goes will will set the tone for how you race together from here on out so you know for me it was a big huge learning curve you know from that part of it like who i'm racing how driving the car you know even though i've i was in the next gen test at charlotte last year these guys have been in the car all year on the oval so you got a little bit of a feel i'm learning switches and you know just all sorts of stuff so there's there's a lot lot thrown at thrown at you at once um but you know still when it comes down to the racing part of it the i love racing i love the dogfight part of it and uh you know it's it's exactly how i like to race i mean when i always tell people i'm i'm the guy that will run the car with fenders hanging off i i always just say I'm I'm not necessarily made for F1. I'm more made for NASCAR. People always ask me because I'm the guy that will run it through a vibration, dumb or not. Maybe the tire blows, whatever. I'll run it through a vibration. I'll run it with the fenders off. I'll keep on driving it till it won't go anymore. You know. Got to give you a little bit of respect that just came in here, Joey, by text. Our man Scotty McLaughlin, winner of the opening IndyCar race of the year at St. Pete second in the recent event at texas says hey i can't get on the show tonight but please tell joey that i fully respect his off the shelf awry helmet this past weekend oh, so gosh. he uh he loves the the quick little <laughs> sticker job on the cue ball helmet there so scotty well, mac weighing in yeah well uh, first of all i don't even uh i don't know him at all so it's pretty cool and i fully respect that guy coming over and getting into an indy car and and getting it done, uh, something that I, you know, would love to do, you know, being able to drive multiple, multiple different cars and winning different, different types of cars is awesome. So, uh, that was a running joke in the team because couldn't get, come to find out, I just, my old, my helmets weren't going to make it through NASCAR tech last minute. My buddy, uh, Jeff at Arai Americas, the helmets were stuck out on a container ship somewhere and the last minute they came in, got me a new helmet, new Arai helmet, which is, I've been in for 20 plus years, even though Wheeler was trying to get me in something else. But, hey, just uh, so you know, just so you know, I'm now the Arai dealer in Indy and I was sitting on my inventory in case for a backup in case you needed one from Jeff. Okay. All right. Well, thank and, you. <laughs> and I, I was know. hoping you were going to pull off a top 10 because we were carbon safety technologies was going to do a full marketing campaign today on social media saying hashtag be like Joey with our white helmet inventory. <laughs> Dude, it was a running joke that it was like a Saturday night special. Like <laughs> I was, I, I seriously didn't want to take it out. I, I carried it out in my bag to the car uh and then put it in the and put it in the seat of the car and people were laughing i mean the guys had a good time with it we just were joking it's like the same thing you'd run on you know dirt track saturday night and i everybody's like i remember my first helmet (laughs) (laughs) i mean the least you could do is just carry some you know colorful sharpies in case you know you kind of do a last minute livery there and the guys did guys gave me up some gave me some stickers got some ford on it got the joey hand on it there we had, go. i need the air duct on it um yeah just just couldn't get it done in time and yeah it was chase was kind of laughing at me also he thought it was funny but you know sometimes you know last time i wore a white helmet it was uh the week after my big mid-ohio crash Ooh. uh i actually cracked my helmet that week from hitting my head and uh, rye had to send me a new one 
new white one for that. So the next week at Lime Rock, there's a few pictures you'll see of me wearing a white helmet. Um, but you know, I figured, well, all these guys do it. They not necessarily do it with a white one, but you know, these guys run stickers on their helmets for sponsors and you know, it helped, uh, I got some Ford on there. I got the Ford pass rewards visa on the, on the visor and all that. And Hey, it the worked. Fa- the it's family still, was happy. The family still, was happy with it. Yeah. The family was Joe, happy. Everybody was happy. <laughs> Joe, you touched there that, you know, Chase is kind of making funny and I, you know, it's my job to pay attention to Cardi, right? Like it's my job to, to continually look at talent, um, as, as it's growing, you know, in our grassroots forms of motorsports. Um, and, and your kid has done a fantastic job. Like, honestly, I'm still kind of hoping one day I'll be able to run into you guys and purchase my own uh, T-shirt with his logo on it because his logo is way cool. Um, yeah. But how has it been for you as a dad? Most most race car drivers, you know, their kid, people say, oh, what's your kid going to get a go-kart? And you're like, never. He's getting golf clubs. You know, I'm That's not what gonna... Natalie says. Just so you know, that's exactly what Mama <laughs> Hand says. She's like, well, sell it all. I've done this. I've done this with Bourdais, right? He, his son, Alex has been in the kid cart twice. And he's like, look, if he's not going to ask about it, I'm not going to push it. Cause I'm not spending the money, but carting now is a, is a totally different machine than when I started in carting or when you were in carting. Um, what has that experience been like just on teaching him, not just the race craft stuff, not just getting quality father sometime, but kind of teaching him the business and how, how backstabbing this industry can be. Well, first of all, Chase started driving when he was five also, and he drove like twice a year. Somebody wrecked him like on the second day, and he was kind of over it, you know, a kid cart, and uh, didn't want anything to do with it. And I was driving all the time, just, you know, doing laps and practicing and, you know, exercising, whatever, and didn't care. I owned a racetrack at the time. I owned a cart shop, a cart team with my buddy Eric Bartolero, and I was, we were all in and karting. He wanted nothing to do it. My dad ran the races at our track. He would ride around the scooter and just as like the race, second race director, nothing didn't want to do it. And one day he said, I said, okay, we're signing up for baseball again because he played baseball and he's a good pitcher and all that. And this is like 10 years old sign, uh, sign up for baseball. Nope. I don't want to do baseball. I'm like, well, we're doing something. We're not doing nothing. We're doing something. And he's like, I want to race. I'm like, really? I said, all right, but just so you know, we're going to miss some stuff. You go racing, especially at, with me, I mean, we're going to go to win. <laughs> I mean, sorry. we're going to practice. We're going to miss some, some dinners. We're going to miss some, you know, birthday parties, whatever, but we're going to win. And he was like all in. And since that day, that kid has been a student of the game. I mean, he loves racing. He knows more about racing than anybody I know, all, all levels, all different types of racing. And, uh, He's, he knows everybody who races, everything, carts, everything, all their numbers, whatever, but you know, he's, and he's done good. And we put a lot of time in, man. Lucky, luckily for him a little bit, not for everybody, but you know, when the Ford GT deal ended, it gave me a lot more time. Let's put it that way. And so we spent a lot of time at the track driving carts and, you know, I've used, I've met in my career or, you know, since my career started, the reason I have a career is because of a lot of people helping me. You know, guys like Art Verlinger at RLV Tuned Exhaust. He was my first sponsor in 1992. Still helped me. Still sponsored me. Sponsors Chase. Um, and I had, you know, like Emic and all these people that helped me. And all these people down the, that helped me in my days, uh, when I make the call and say, hey, can you, you know, help us out here with Chase? 
have stepped up. And so it's, you know, it's carding is expensive and it takes a lot of time. And, um, you know, I do my best to, you know, as far as the business part of it, he just, he rides along, you know, he gets to hang out this weekend. He was in, he doesn't ever want to go anywhere, but the garage. Can I go with you to the garage? Yeah. And he's getting old enough to know where he can be there. And so he gets to see it. And if he wants to continue to do it, that's fine. I mean, the best thing I do for him is teach him how to race, you know, because honestly, everything, every deal I've gotten is because I could race, not because, I mean, being fast, obviously is one thing you got to be fast at some point, but you know, as Chip would say, you know, you want the guy that can close the deal. You know, that's, that's how Chip hired guys, the guys that close the deal. And, you know, that's the same thing I tell Chase. I mean, we got to be able to close the deal and be fast also, but, um, want that guy in there at the end. So I don't know. You never, never know what, what's going to happen with him. I mean, for me, it's like you said, also it's, you know, father, son time, you know, I'm, we're a racing family. Although my daughter's playing tournament softball now, thankfully she's taken a, t- taken a turn the other way because I can't even imagine having her out there. I'd probably can't, I'd be in so many fights at the scale if she was racing. You can't even believe it. But, uh, I could see, yeah. I could see your brother and your dad fighting at the scale. Oh, it, you know my brother, my my little <laughs> big brother Jeff. Yeah, you know him. He's one of my yeah. favorite people in the world. When yeah. you were in the Ford program and we got to hang out, it was just he and I the whole weekend at the twenty four. Yeah, we had a golf that's cart. right. We had oh, a golf that's... cart, a grill, and a and a cooler full of beer. Yeah, and that was probably one of my favorite Daytona twenty fours ever. And he loved it too. That was one of his favorite times ever. And. He, yeah, you're right. It wouldn't be me. It'd be my dad and him. It'd be, they'd be backing her up. It'd be a problem, major problem. But thankfully, she's doing tournament softball for now. But, you know, anybody that knows me knows my wife and I met when we were 12 years old racing go-karts. And we started dating when we were 16 years old, and we've never been apart. So it's it's in our blood. She knows it. She was a team manager at our BMW, at BMW Team PTG and at DSTP. She, she's been around it all. So, um that's exactly why she wants chase to golf <laughs> is what I would say. But she, we all know what it's all about. And, you know, it's, I, I believe in racing, uh, no matter how far you go, I believe in it as, you know, making a better person. And, and even if you don't race for a living, I do think it's, it shapes you better for the world to come. So we're going to open that up now. If we've got uh, any of our listeners, you know, Joey is on a bit of a time schedule here tonight. So if you have any questions, comments, concerns, raise your hand, request to speak. Marshall, what do you think, buddy? Well, I'm thinking we've got Bob Varsha here. So uh, the dean of American Motorsports Broadcasting, that's what I think. So knowing that Bob has called countless uh, Joey hand raises, I just love her. Uh, I bet Bob has a good question for Joey after, uh, despite not having the finish you wanted, in Coda, Joey, showing folks that road racing skills do indeed transfer. Well, I'm a big Bob Bob Varsha fan also. It's cool to have him on also. You guys are going to make me blush. That voice, I always, that that voice, you always recognize that voice. Tell you. Yep. All I got to do is get hired now. But anyway, you know, sorry it was a tough weekend for you, Joey. I know you've wanted to do this for a long time. Um, and, and what exactly do you think you need um, 
other than perhaps just experience to uh, to take a step up and be as competitive as I know you want to be? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we touched on a few of it. I mean, some of the stuff that's different for me, uh, I, I haven't touched on this, but, you know, there's just a lot of things that go into the weekend that are different. I mean, being, you know, I did Charlotte last year. It was kind of crazy because there was no practice, no qualifying, show up Sunday morning, never even driven the car and just ship it off into turn one. That was an experience of its own. But wow. the things that stand out is just so much. The differences are like pit lane. You know, for example, I've never done a pit lane or pit stop without a pit speed limiter. Since I started doing since I started doing pit stops after I left Toyota Atlantic, um, it was a pit speed limiter. So when you come into NASCAR, there's no pit speed limiter at all. It's your foot dragging the brake. There's lights. This this RPM this equals this mile an hour, and it's on you. And you got 40 cars in the pit lane trying to jam in there. And one of the that was one of the biggest kind of stressors for me is is getting down into my into the pit box and out of the pit box. I told the guys, man every time I would do it on the simulator or anything, getting out of the pit box, I'm used to having that pit speed limiter locked on. I just drive it out there and totally overspeed. So I told him, just remind me pit speed, pit speed, pit speed when I leave the pit box. And so it's just, I think the small things, it's what I've taught all my life as a driver coach for kids or whatever is I always teach people, you know, like I'll sit in a race car and anything new I drive and I'll just look at all the switches, make sure I know where the wiper is and pit speed limiter and the, push to talk and all this stuff because it sounds kind of stupid but when you get in the heat of the battle and it starts to rain or something like that and it's like oh man where's that windshield wiper and you got to call in hey can you tell me where windshield wiper switches that time could be the difference between winning and losing you know missing your pit speed button and driving over the pit speed and getting a drive-through penalty that could be the difference and so uh yeah i try to do the same stuff and and practice what i preach and and get in there and sit there. I know where all the switches are, but still there's just some things that you, you can only get practice by doing. And so, um, I think just a few, you know, getting a, a couple races in, just getting this one race in, I felt really good about what I did on, on the pit lane this week. Um, and the little bit I got to learn about who I was racing with and all that, all that stuff is going to make me better. And when I get to the next race at Sonoma, um, I'm just going to be more comfortable and, every race I'm going to get more and uncomf- more comfortable. And it's not, a, it's, it's been kind of a funny thing. And my, my good friend, uh, Jamie Howe sellers, she's always kind of makes a little bit of fun of me, but always jokes about it. But I always say when, when I get comfy, things get crazy and it's, it's, it's a thing. Comfort makes speed, you know, comfort with your team, comfort with your car, it's not just one thing. You have to be comfortable. And the more comfortable you are, the more focus you can have on the task at hand. And so I think that comfort level will go a long ways for me. Yeah, I've heard very similar things from uh, from guys on the Formula One circuit. Uh, Martin Brundle drove with Michael Schumacher in the Benetton days. And Brundle always assumed or always suggested that uh, the big advantage Schumacher had was what you describe as comfort in the car. He used maybe 50% of his ability to control the car and watch the road ahead. And the other 50% would be taking in the big picture. What's, what are the trends? What's everybody else doing? Who's pitting when? And so on. Uh, whereas 
A lot of other drivers, Brundle said, will use 85% of their ability just to just to keep the car on the island and only use 15% to think about what else is going on that might make the difference, as you say, in, uh, in winning and losing. So absolutely. I think yeah. that's something that, you know, is talked about a lot. People use the word focus a lot and, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes focus may not be the right word because you use the, what I think is the right word is the big picture, you know, mm-hmm. seeing everything is what I think some of the best like Schumacher and Senna and, guys like that have i've been the best at you know jimmy johnson who's been one of the best in nascar i think you could probably say is really good at seeing the big picture and mm-hmm. uh you know that's when you're comfortable that's what it allows you to do you know you're not looking over the front of the car you know the guy the people that are you know you always talk about just people driving on the road you know focusing over the front of the hood is not what you want to do you really need to see the big picture. Uh, that's what allows you to drive better. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, it's going to be, that's going to be the thing. I'm always going to be the new guy, even doing six rate, all six races. I'm still going to be the guy coming in with the least amount of experience and, and jumping in. And, you know, like now I have, you know, what almost two months off before I do another race at, at, uh, Sonoma. But then after that, it'll be, you know, Sonoma, Road America, Indy Road Course, Watkins Glen, it'll all kind of stack in there pretty good. And I, you know, I have a good feeling getting, having some good runs in there. I think we'll, we'll know for sure, Joey, when you're comfortable, that's when we're going to hear you singing over, uh, over your Rick Ware racing radio. So funny. I got a couple texts this week, specifically from my good friend, OG, Mike O'Gara, and his thing was when he texted me, he said, I can't wait to hear you singing. And, uh, that's kind of my thing for the people that don't know is it started out my formula Mazda days with my, my owner, Kent Stacy, who gave me a big break there. And who knows why, but it is the weirdest thing. Uh, do you believe in life after love by share <laughs> seemed to be on every time we did anything in this Mazda team? Uh, it was called S3 Stacy suspension systems. And, uh, seemed like everywhere we went in the van ride to the hotel, it was, do you believe in life after love by share? And so I got my first win and, uh, I think it was at Sonoma and it was, I was like, you know what? I just held the button down and I thought it'd be funny for everybody to hear because it's a running joke. We'd hear it all the time. Do you believe in life after love? So I did the old, do you believe in life after love after love? So, and that and that started a little trend. So I started singing on the radio every time I won. So yes, it's not, you, it's you not ser- good stuff. You don't want to like put that in the radio. <laughs> no, but you serenading us for hours at Thunder Hill that year. I mean, yes, that, uh, you're right. See, see, that was the know. best. Oh, I know. We weren't uh, even winning on that one though. That was a that no. That was, was a poop show. That was uh, trying to keep me. That was trying to keep myself awake. Yes. Well, I appreciate you. And yeah, that was my fault. But nonetheless, you kept us entertained. Nicole, you've uh, you're requested to speak here. Why don't you unmute yourself? The floor is yours with uh, Joey, the mad Californian singer. And hey, guys, this is just a quick comment, Joey. It's great to see you back in the car again. We missed you racing. I know Dad and I were texting during the race. Just keeping each other i recognize this nicole by the way 
Oh, yeah, I know. I'm just sitting here in my pajamas like, oh, I'll listen to this. And uh, yeah, it's just great to see you back in the car and hope to see you up at Elkhart Lake and maybe even get Tim's kids up there. And if we really want to feel old, his oldest is now 10. Thanks. And Bob Varsha, if you are still around, always great to hear you and glad to hear that you are doing well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nicole. So Nicole and her family has been coming to Road America, to the races I've been involved in since the Atlantic days. That's where we met and uh, have been uh, friends and supporters for a long time. So it's good to hear from you and, and hi to the family for sure. The good old DSTP days. Those, those those take me back. Marshall and I often talk about some of those old school Atlantic days and how fun it was for me being a kid in the paddock growing up and watching it. And who knows what crew Marshall was on at that point. I don't know if he was still trying to work on them or he was still looking at those computer things that were supposed to give you that telemetry stuff or where he was at. But uh, No, no, Bob, no. I was, I was wrenching and a little bit of engineering back then. But anybody who was involved in the Atlantic series will tell you, unless they were involved in CART during – the nineties in particular, but pretty much everybody who got the chance to either drive Atlantics, work on Atlantics, be a part of Atlantic teams, Joey, you can attest some of the greatest highlights in racing, the perfect, almost the perfect weight to power ratio, tire to downforce ratio, just golden, golden times. Nonetheless, that was a good time right there. The time I was in there, you know, the, the years before that, even with the Ralts and all that, when I watched, you know, I was coming up through and I watched the Lynx Atlantic days with Alex Barron and Mamo and all that. And even before that, but those were for sure for me, the prime years and, you know, maybe it's off topic, but I, I always thought that if you made it to Atlantic, you made it, you know, like if you made it to Atlantic, that was the toughest step. And you pretty much, you made it to IndyCar after that. So I was slightly wrong on that. Um, I didn't make the Indy car, but uh, <laughs> at least uh, I got to do the Atlantic stuff, and it worked out okay for me. <laughs> thanks. You know, I that's a big thanks. They were the, Sorry, Bob. The go perfect ahead. street race car were the Atlantics. Um, you know, when I called that yeah, series right. back in the day, it was, you know, they. I, I much preferred watching the Atlantic cars go around a place like Long Beach. Um, Toronto. Or Toronto. Yeah. yeah. Than yeah, even I the big agree. cars. Yeah, I agree. It was, and we, we made some great trips. I mean, Vancouver Street Course, remember that one? Uh, yeah. I love that one. And we Trois Riviere. Trois Riviere. Trois Riviere. We were yeah. the headliner at Trois Riviere. So I love that one because we, we were the big show. Uh, yeah. Yeah, all those. They were awesome. We raced Denver. We had so much street racing back there. It was awesome. I, I love that. And, you know, got to give a shout out to. D.D. Rogers, every, I thought what you were going to say, Marshall, was if you were in the paddock in that era, you all had some sort of, uh, you know, mark on your butt cheek. <laughs> well, <laughs> because D.D. <'cause> DD, <laughs> DD was around. Very true. Yeah. And it was just a, a rich time between uh, DSTP, Lynx Racing, little bit before that. I mean, uh, I think Jeff Barker was actually around in the, the formative days of Lynx, but uh, when I was with the Genoa team before that with Fife Ridge racing and such. And, uh, but yeah, just wow. And you can run down the list of all the, uh, the entrants and the drivers and 
just massively, massively important. Well, Joey, yeah. thank you, brother. Thank you so yeah. much for joining in. I know, uh, I know you got a, uh, an evening ahead of you and Bob, uh, why don't we, uh, transition into a little bit of Saudi formula one race? Um, thanks guys. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Joey. Awesome. Take care, Joey. Good to, good to hear Bob. Thanks, Joey. We'll see you soon, man. All right. See you, Chris. Bob, what comes to mind when you look at what took place last weekend? We know that we have a winner. We know that Max Verstappen pulled off a masterful late race surge, uh, got mm-hmm. past Leclerc, uh, overcame the, the terrible start to the season. We know that we have a podium. Uh, we know that we have points that have been scored. What do you think is going to come to mind, though, five years, ten years from now, about uh, round two of the 2022 Formula One season? Is it going to be the winners and losers of the motorized contest? Or is it going to be this really unfortunate and strange uh, weekend that seemed to almost start with an attack and then went in a lot of strange places afterwards. What do you think is going to stand out uh, when we look back? Well, that's a great question, Marshall, but I think people have short memories. Now, a lot's going to depend on what happens going forward. Yes, the weekend got off to a terrible start with the, uh, with the attack on the Aramco oil facility. Um, there were lengthy meetings, many, many lengthy meetings, including a meeting among the drivers uh, with the authorities and then on their own as part of the GPDA uh, activities. And it went, went on for four hours. Um, I do a radio show with pre and post race coverage and Chris Midland has joined our announce crew and uh, he was on site. And the initial reports that came out were, we've been assured that we are safe, everything's fine, we're going to race. But I have it on good authority. That's not how it went down at all. And there were Same a lot here. of unanswered questions. And I can tell you, I went to Saudi Arabia when Formula E, the electric single-seater series, started there, what, four or five years ago. And before we took off, we got a, a thick sheaf of papers, um, basically a manual on how to behave in Saudi Arabia, which, of course, is a devout Muslim country. So, you know, no alcohol, no public displays of affection, no, God forbid, any LGBTQ activities. Um, but they also, what caught my eye was a, a, a paragraph that said, well, we, from time to time, come under missile attack from various sources. And uh, typically, we intercept and destroy most of them. And I thought, most, most. of them? Most. Oh, no. How about the ones that you don't? But, you know, this is this is daily life for them in Saudi Arabia, has been for eight or 10 years now. Um, so I'm, I'm sure the authorities, giving them the benefit of the doubt, thought, you know, this is no big deal. You know, we're going to go forward. We're going to have a race. You know, people are going to go about their lives and occasionally there's going to be a missile attack. There was one last year at the Formula E weekend in uh, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, which is a lot closer to the war zone than. Jetta. Um, but anyway, it, it caused a huge fuss. I think it really got the weekend off on a, on a sour note. Um, but the race was terrific. 
Um, I think the track is is really interesting. Supposedly, there's a new super track being built near the capital at Riyadh. So the Saudis have a plan to expand their motorsports presence and stay in the game for a while. I just read today, uh, among all of the literature discussing the attack uh, on Jeddah this past weekend, that there was a, a, a bomb uh, that affected the Dakar rally, which, of course, takes place in Saudi Arabia now. And we've had a, an Extreme E electric off-road series weekend there, and Formula E went back again this year. So, you know, if, if motorsports is going to flourish in Saudi Arabia, this is something that's going to have to be dealt with. And the drivers in Formula One, to their credit, insist that the FIA um, devote some energies to having a close look at whether or not events should go forward in Saudi Arabia. And certainly the Saudis are not the only uh, host country with a sketchy record on human rights. Um, but having said all that, I think people will forget about all that. If the race goes forward and we get the kind of racing we had last weekend, tremendous new rivalry between Verstappen and uh, Charles Leclerc. Ferrari uh, has really hit the nail on the head with their new car. Red Bull solved the problems that, that ruined their Bahrain weekend. Speaking of countries with sketchy civil rights records. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's going to be fun. These are new cars from the ground up. Everybody knew there'd be new car blues. There certainly were. Things are being dealt with. Uh, in two weeks, we'll be down in Melbourne, Australia, and, and hopefully have another great race on a reconfigured racetrack. It's going to be a lot faster, we're told, than the uh, than it used to be. Um, so, yeah, you've got a, a good point. I know where you're going with this, Marshall. Um, nobody wants to be a part of a country that brutalizes its own people. But there are an awful lot of countries that fall into that category, one of which, one might argue, is the United States of America. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we, we can't be precious. Yeah. yeah. We, we, Americans are being killed under the guise of legal authority, shall we call it. Um, you know, nobody is without sin in this whole situation. There just needs to be some very clear, organized thinking about what has to take place before Formula One will bring the circus to town. Formula One insists we're, we're going to be a force for good. I thought about that a lot. I think if you're going to be a force for good, you have to involve the culture and the people that you're dealing with. You don't fly in on your private jet, go to your hotel, go lock yourself in your motorhome, run the race, and then split town. You got to go in the schools and you've got to go out on the streets and you've got to get people involved and people talking. You have to inspire young people to be a part of of uh, this motorsport should they choose to. You can't just say, well, we're forced for good just because we show up and take sixty five million dollars off of the national treasury. You know, one thing that that stood out from this as well, Bob, and we've seen it written about somewhat but it has yet to be a bold large 72 point font headline was speaking with a friend of mine who works for one of the formula one teams mm -hmm. and they were they were saying that there was no choice as to whether they partook in the grand prix 
on Sunday. This was the not an option. Uh, drivers, yeah. crews, yes, the the entertainers, if you want to put it that way, uh, the okay. teams on pit lane in charge of putting on the race. There was no choice, true choice, although there were lengthy meetings, as you mentioned, four plus hours worth of driver meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, he shared in very clear terms, this was not a question or an option. They were, there was no chance anybody would be leaving Saudi Arabia prior to their putting on a Formula One race. And he said it was very clear, made very clear to them. uh, I don't want to get into any uh, hyperbolic statements and whatnot, but uh, they did not have an option to say no or leave. Or however you want, however yep. that should be phrased. They did not have an option to leave. Therefore, the yep. one way to grant their own exit was to put on a motor race. That that I think is a really interesting thing to ponder when one is in a country that is not of your own. You are indeed guests. Mm-hmm. Uh, your visa, your your presence there, and ability mm-hmm. to stay or leave is being used as a tool to ensure that the motor race that's been advertised will be held. I I don't know if that's been used before in motor racing. I did Mm. read something. I think it might've been last year, the year before the WWE uh, had an event. They've been doing a lot of events in Saudi Arabia over the last couple of years. And Mm. there was some sort of big dispute between WWE ownership and uh, the sovereign nation in terms of payment and I think three of the senior most leaders of the WWE were able to get out on their private plane before this hit the fan. All of the wrestlers, the the stage and support people, they weren't as fortunate and found that they were at the the leisure uh, of the uh, the Saudi government until whatever this dispute was was resolved. But they, mm-hmm. similar to Formula One drivers crew and whatnot were told oh really no 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 <laughs> uh yeah. you'll leave when we say you leave i think that might be something bob that if there's any change going forward uh, mm-hmm. i think that might be the one area that that pushes formula one to consider uh where it races well yeah you don't so i mean you want to see some backbone and some integrity in these situations now Everybody knows Formula One is a $2 billion a year series, and it's hard to get to that $2 billion figure if you're annoying countries like those in the Middle East who pay, I would guess, an average of about $50 million each to have a race. Um, So, you know, there's a certain willingness among people to do whatever it takes to earn money, but... um, this is a problem, and this uh, needs to be called to the attention of, uh, well, of the world as well. I was a little su- surprised that Lewis Hamilton, who's known to be very much a, uh, you know, an independent thinker in these things, didn't have much to say. So I assume, I could be wrong, but I assume he was somewhat muzzled in all of this, and I kept wishing that Sebastian Vettel, the four-time world champion, had not tested positive, which he did in Bahrain, and immediately flew home to Switzerland. 
probably because he wanted to do what you described the WWE totems doing, you know, just getting the hell out of Dodge. Um, yeah, it's just, I thought if, if Sebastian had been there, there's no doubt in my mind, he would have said something. He would have stood up. He might have been forced to sit back down, but he would have made his feelings clear on the subject. It's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing to ponder. Uh, and Formula One, if it indeed wants to go to 25 races a year and then maybe 30 races a year, God forbid, um, they're going to run into this question again. You know, they dealt with Russia and the Ukraine situation by simply cutting them off. There will be no Russian Grand Prix. There will be no Russian drivers you know, and so on and so on and so on. So why they would react this way to the Saudi situation is you know, somehow curious to me. Um, but, you know, Bob is, is imperious, forgive me, organization. I mean, going back to the Abu Dhabi finale last year in this report and clarification that was published by the FIA, I know for a fact that race director Michael Massey and deputy race director Scott Elkins, who's familiar to Americans through uh, IMSA racing, and he is the race director for Formula E and Extreme E, so I, I see and hear a lot of Scott. They were not interviewed with regard to what happened in Abu Dhabi. You know, this report was going to get written, I feel, according to the way the FIA wanted it to be written. And um, and I think that's a, a terrible shame. I know Scott was offered about half a season as the new Formula One race director, and he turned it down. Uh, so I think that, that speaks volumes. It might be the smartest thing he's but, ever done. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he feels that way, you know. This is supposed to be fun. Yeah, it's high stakes, a lot of money, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, this is supposed to be, you know, sporting and, and competition. And, you know, there, there's supposed to be a, a friendly feeling to it. But, you know, when politics starts to get in, it becomes difficult. Bob, anyway, we talked there race. a little bit about... Um... We talked there a little bit about some of the, the stuff in the season finale last year um, and the driver's uh -huh. stuff and actually had this conversation on Twitter with um, with some people uh, this weekend talking about the F2 race. And that kind of was a bit of a debacle. And I feel like there's kind of like a political trend of recent years um, that some of these series globally, um, they're hiring the people they want to hire not the people they need to hire in race control. They're hiring the political puppets in some ways. Not yeah. the not, I, I've said for years, and I, this is nothing against the current realm of IndyCar. I've said this for 15 years. I thought, you know, Wally Dollenbach did a great job in the kart days, and I wish a guy like Poncho Carter would have been at some point the race director of the, of the IndyCar series. Somebody yeah. who's been there, who's done it, who can see the forest through the trees, and doesn't care who you are, where you came from, but more of, Here's the rules, here's the regulations, and here's what makes sense for the safety and then the sport. And I I for me, I feel like totally. we've lost some of that over the years where it's now become more political. But let's talk about the on-track product. Um, 
a lot of comments about sure. things like, you know, a lot of criticism on the FIA and Formula One because of Schumacher's accident. And it's the track was too dangerous or the walls are too close. And then now it's, I've, I've been reading how it's all about, um, you know, DRS, you know, the cars are good now. The cars can race close now. Yep. You know, do we need the DRS kind of, is DRS going to ruin it? Type, type <laughs> kind of thoughts. You know, what are, what are your thoughts on the on well, track from the weekend? I actually think DRS made the race in Saudi Arabia. Uh, we saw it being used for the first time, not as a simple push to pass mechanism, but you had to add the element of the detection point and who was ahead of whom at that detection point in that great lead swapping battle for several laps between Verstappen and Leclerc. Um, drivers, one or the other of them, Leclerc to begin with, was being very careful to slow down enough in the final corner, the 27th turn where the detection point was, so that Verstappen would get by carrying his momentum through the corner. But at that point, it would be Leclerc who would have DRS down the next straightaway and he'd simply pass him back. And that would Bob, I, I have never seen Verstappen more courteous Formula One drivers, Bob. Never have I ever seen, no, 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 after you. It was, it's a great point of, okay, crossing that line first could be a liability after you, Claude. No, after you, Jean. I mean, it was hilarious. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a tactical element in a way that I don't think it was for the first few years DRS was involved. I don't think they really knew how to use it. And with the separation of the cars that we had, nobody could follow close enough to, uh, you know, to uh, to use that tool during the race. And finally, Verstappen sussed it out. Actually, one of the one of the best at it was Kevin Magnussen, who's, you know, parachuted into Haas uh, and became the only representative of that team in the race after Schumacher's accident. But Magnussen was quite good at that, you know, jumping people uh, using the DRS after he let them get by into that corner. So, you know, that, that was one element of the whole thing. It's a, it's a just horrifyingly fast track, but the drivers all seemed to like it. Nobody really uh, voiced an opinion that it wasn't a lot of fun. I mean, Magnuson, who had never raced there before this weekend, um, says it's one of his favorite tracks. They did modify it a little bit to get some of the, the concrete moved back so that not all of the corners are as blind as they once were. I think it was a faux pas on the Formula One's part not to have a tire wall where uh, Schumacher went in uh, and, thank goodness, um, walked away, more or less. Uh, that was a very scary moment. All I could think of was his mom, Corinna, back home, uh, still nursing his dad mm. uh, and, and what might have gone through her mind. But anyway, uh, it was spectacular stuff, and there was a lot of close nose-to-tail and wheel-to-wheel action in that race. Great dice between the two uh, Alpine teammates, Fernando Alonso and Esteban Ocon, uh, who it looked like were, were trying to kill each other for a while, but then <laughs> they got they got out of the car and said, oh, no, that was great, lots of fun. You know, this is what we, this is what we need. So, okay, race drivers definitely do think differently than the rest of us. Bob, uh, why don't we go ahead and ask you all if you want to, raise a question, share a comment about the uh, Formula One race last weekend, request to speak, raise a hand, uh, come on in and join. Before uh, we get to that, Bob, or while we're waiting, 
I do love another point that you mentioned, and this is the the race engineer and me. We're getting what we should have when there is a major technology change in a racing mm-hmm. series. Yep. We, I don't, we've seen it to some degree so far with the, the new next gen cup car, but there's still, you know, the haves are still having most, the have nots are, you know, track house obviously was a, a great breakthrough win last weekend, but I don't know if we've seen the, the leveling of the playing field as all teams are getting to know the new next gen cup car. There has though seemed to be a pretty fun element here with formula one with this new formula and you mentioned the Alpine team rising up. It's, I don't know if my brain is going to wire properly seeing those cars in the BWT uh, pink, by the way, that, that might not, it might take me a couple of years to get there, but what I love Bob and, and uh, as a historian of the sport, who's called Senna's races on back forever. Give me your thoughts about the new car designs and the fact that if you share in this little piece of irony with me, the most conventional looking formula one car in the grid, the Ferrari seems to be magic. And I realize yeah. that, that, uh, Max got by and ended up winning the race, but I love looking at the fact that everyone else is just twisting and contorting themselves and to come up with all these unique things aerodynamically. And you look at the Ferrari and go, yeah, it's kind of new race car. One Oh one. This seems like we got the basic model and yet the thing's a rocket. I love at Haas as well. Uh, tell me yep. about your love for this shift, Bob, and the fact that, again, we've shuffled the deck a little bit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's always going to happen, as you mentioned, with new technology. And the biggest technical change this year is where the downforce is created. It's not outwash at the front wing and all of the downforce being created by barge boards and, and wings and all that stuff on the upper part of the car. It's a step back in time, if you will, 30 or 40 years to Venturi tunnels underneath and the downforce is created by inwash and air being channeled under the car, expanding in the tunnels and uh, and heading out the diffuser. That, of course, brought on the, the phenomenon that's been talked about endlessly called porpoising. When these cars are so efficient that the downforce drives the rear of the car to the ground, so the air stalls and the, the car pops up at the back and does this at a pretty high frequency. If you watch the cars, the onboard cameras, you see drivers' helmets bobbing in and out of the picture. I don't know how they keep their their dentures in place and their eyeballs from rolling because, you know, it's a pretty violent thing. The, the teams are getting on top of it, some more than others, uh, and they will all eventually because that's what new technology does, a new rule book. It costs everybody a lot of money, but suddenly everybody's on the same back foot. Nobody has a thick notebook of of setup notes for this track or that track or the other thing. Everybody is is trying their best. Frankly, we were all afraid that all the cars would come out looking just like that model they showed off at Silverstone last year, but they didn't. They, they, there's so many differences between the cars, and I suspect, and maybe you'll agree with me, that the reason that the Red Bull is up there again is because the guy who drew it using his pencil and his drawing board, is Adrian Newey, who decades ago was in IndyCar working with Venturi Tunnels and uh, you know doing that kind of racing. So uh, I think maybe he had a head start on everybody. 
and understanding absolutely how to deal with it and make the car slick the, the the most immediate problem they're having right now is cooling these cars but you know it'll be worked out yep. and and that's all part of the fun in formula one this is the stuff i live for bob and i think this is also the thing that Formula One fans have been dreaming of for a little while. And that is, oh, mm-hmm. Mercedes, it's been a long time since you were kind of midfield, not dumpster fire, but yeah. we had no reason to fear yeah. you. It's been a long yeah. time since we had no reason to fear you. And right now, granted, George Russell, I mean, that kid is definitely showing that he has the ability to drive through the car's limitations, I think, to a, a stronger degree than Lewis Hamilton. I'm not saying he's better yeah. than Lewis, but one thing we uh, see and we pick out, if we look at Andretti Autosport, for example, if we look at mm-hmm. Team Penske just going to IndyCar, uh, Joseph Newgarden is wickedly effective on a day among his teammates when maybe all of their cars aren't tack sharp. He, instead of being limited, is able to not completely overcome, but rise beyond. Colton Herta at Andretti, similar trait. Uh, If all the cars are off, he seems to be able to be affected less and perform slightly better, at least through two rounds. It certainly looks like George Russell is able to be less bothered with the things about the new Mercedes that aren't to his and, and Lewis's liking. But here's yet again, this, this bizarre thing where you go, okay, cool. So what did we think we were going to have coming out of last season into this? Just a resumption, uh, more rounds of Lewis versus Max. And instead, seemingly it's Lewis against his team. Um, Max against Charles Leclerc right now. Carlos mm-hmm. Sainz is looking stronger and, and stronger. Again, I just love the fact that the lack of predictability uh, many have suffered through for quite some time. Uh, this new formula has given us uh, a real reason to tune in and not exactly know what the outcome is going to be. To me, that's the yeah. perfect scenario for motor racing. <laughs> well, let me throw a stat out there that supports your point. I made it on my radio show last week. Consider Lewis Hamilton. Fernando Alonso and Max Verstappen. Ten world championships between them, 138 pole positions between them, and all three were outqualified by their younger teammates. I love it. I absolutely One of them had never had a pole previously. You know, Chico, yeah. Checo Perez, uh, you know, took his first pole after 215 tries. Um, yeah, uh, he, George Russell. Esteban Ocon, yeah, that that new generation. I'm not saying the torch is being passed, but I think you're spot on about how these young guys are seeing the benefit of not having a lot of experience in that you have no bad, bad habits. You have no expectations about what this, that, or the other is going to do to the car. And, um, yeah, we'll just have to see as the season plays out whether or not uh, that holds. I've just penciled in, by the way, check, go for pole position at uh, race 430. So, you know, uh, <laughs> he's a patient man. One of the many reasons we love uh, the fine product of Mexico. Uh, why yeah. don't we welcome in Bun Bun Maddie uh, to take the floor? 
raise a, hey uh, a question and uh, <laughs> say hello to the Bob Varsha. Hey, Bob. Uh, I've been I've been hearing your voice for a long, long time. Well, thank you. It's very kind of you. I hope you get to hear it for a long time still. So do I. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in regards to uh, the DRS, I I think it's interesting. So the, the way that it's triggered with a specific detection zone, I wonder if there's a way, you know, as Marshall mentioned, you know, you've never seen Formula One drivers so polite. And I think that's true. I, I wonder if there's a way to trigger it that would make the racing uh, more pure, for lack of a better word, where everybody's going as hard as they can all of the time and and you're still triggering DRS in a way. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like the the way the DRS is triggered, it becomes a game. It becomes a little bit of a, you know, who can who can play the game better, not who can drive the car faster. And I'm I'm just wondering if there's a different way to trigger it um, well, to get the same effect, you know, with, with a different result. Um, I don't know. <laughs> First of all, short answer is there may be, but if I may, I'll, I'll say, I'm not sure across the history of racing, everybody has driven as hard as they can all the time, um, for various reasons. So that's um, a fair. And, and so, you know, when, when someone's willing to be a bit more tactical, you know, to, to let somebody else think something's, something's going on that isn't or, you know, or just lets him buy so he can grab the technical advantage that the DRS employs. I, I, I don't think that's a bad thing, really. Uh, Jackie Stewart once said, really, in a Formula One race, there's only about six guys who have a chance of winning. Everybody else is, is just out there happy to be there. Uh, I'm not sure that's the case anymore, but, but it, you know, it's still... If you don't have a race car that's able to to power outpower the other guy, then you got to come up with something else if you're going to win the race. You've got to use, you know, clever tactics to uh, to win. And you know that's that's how a champion does it. I think is you go out there and you use all of the tools at your um, in your your little quiver, all the tools in your box, as it were, to um, to get the best result. And sometimes you have to go slow to go faster. As I think Joey Ham was trying to say, you get, you're comfortable in the car. You, you know what you've got under you and you use everything that car can deliver to, uh, to achieve the result you're looking for. I, but that's yeah, just me. That that's a fair point. I I can't argue. I mean, tactics always make racing better. True, right? Yeah. So I think so. Yeah. And pit stops. Yes, yes. It'd be it'd be nice if we could get some fuel strategy involved in F one. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, I think Red Bull did at the first race. They just didn't plan Uh on it. So (laughs) uh, yeah, uh, unintended (laughs) fuel strategery. As our cat Rocky, Rocky, he's currently biting the edge of the phone. Thanks, buddy. Uh, new phone. I need some tooth marks. And now he's putting his butt in my face. So, AKA, a very normal Monday evening here in the Pruitt household. Uh, Bun Bun Maddie, thank you for, uh, for that. Why don't we go to uh, Kareem? Why don't you unmute yourself? The floor is yours here on the hashtag Racing Family Show brought to you by Cooper Tires. 
the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com. Yes, hi. Can you hear me? Sure. Hear can. you perfectly. Awesome. Uh, really enjoying the discussion. I, I joined a bit late. Um, so appreciate a lot of the people here uh, for many, many years. I would just like to remind people that um, there was a race in Montreal, Canada in 2013, Formula One, where Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso were slowing down so that they wouldn't trip the DRS zone approaching the hairpin. So we've seen this before, just maybe not as uh, uh, widely used throughout the race as we saw this weekend. Well, there you go. See, this is why we go to our fans here. There's no way that kind of stuff is going to fall into my brain and stay. So uh, appreciate <laughs> yeah. you, Kareem, for sure. Uh, Dan, why don't you unmute yourself? I love your uh, I love your little Twitter note here in your bio. Wabash always fights. No, not one exclamation point, Dan, but four. <laughs> hey, Wabash always fights. And I'll tell you this, Marshall, you don't know this. But the Wabash DePaul football game every year is it's an institution. If you've not been to West Central Indiana and to Crawfordsville, Indiana, and supported the fighting men of Wabash, you have not lived in the heartland. Oh, that's oh, that's so kind of you to hear. That's so kind, so kind to hear that. Yeah, uh, I'm honored to hear that. Uh, you know, we're a, we're a very small community, but uh, yeah, our it boys, doesn't uh, fit. We, it doesn't fought- fit, but I still have my Wabash. Uh, a, a t-shirt from high school because a, a gentleman graduated before me went and played football at Wabash and I, we would go there and see him on the weekends and I still have it. It doesn't fit maybe one day, <laughs> but I will never let that Wabash t-shirt go. I am oh, so I'm, buying you a Wabash Speedo Wheeler. <laughs> oh, we're going to make sure that sucker fits. <laughs> no, there's, there's well, not a whole lot of us out here in the world and I really appreciate that, Christopher. That's that's very kind of you to say. Our, our boys made it to the, the Final Four and the D3. You know, uh, We can't uh, be too upset about that. Um, and it's really nice to speak with you all. I've uh, got a, gosh, the, the wife of, a, of an astronaut here and so many uh, incredible human beings. But I was just thinking about the, uh, the, DRS, the DRS situation. It, it, it introduces a, um, a, a, str- a strategy that we see at, at Indy. You know, do you set them up off of coming out of two? Do you set them up co- coming out of... Uh, uh, out of out of one, you know, it. it I, I think that's uh, it, it, it. The DRS situation is a wonderful thing in Formula One right now, especially with the the disparity between the teams um, that we're you're getting with the new regs. And I, the, the question I really wanted to pose was where where can can uh, IndyCar, for instance, uh, get kind of some direction here as far as a new chassis there's so much been talk about the uh, the new the new engine and uh but you know you've got guys talking about um you know they're going to testing and you know everybody's just looking for maybe a thousandth of a, of a second and it's really not coming you know and and at, at what point do we just kind of have to have a reset and where's the money going to be spent you know, is, is the money better spent on a new engine package or is it a better you know choice to, to go with the, the chassis? Great question, Dan. So, so today, of course, being the first on track testing of the new 2024 IndyCar engines, slightly larger in displacement meant to put out about a hundred horsepower more from just the internal combustion side, the uh, energy recovery system, 
those units won't be in hand until June or so. Those are meant to be 80 to 100 horsepower uh, boost on top of all that. Interesting question, though, on timing and money. So IndyCar has given its team owners a one-year stay of financial execution. Kidding a little bit there, but they've given them an extra year. This was meant to happen in 2023. Uh, A lot of the vendors supporting the internal combustion side of this regulation change just wouldn't be ready. So teams have until 2024 before they have to start paying more money for these engine leases. We don't know what that number is going to be yet. Right now it's around about 1.1 million a year. Don't know what it's going to be in 2024, but it's going to be more. I know that along with that increase, teams are going to have to spend, it's, it's a guess right now. Some think it's going to be a quarter million. Some think it might be less. Some may be a little more to modify the existing Delar DW12 uh, chassis that debuted in 2012. Uh, there's going to be some significant mm-hmm. investments here. And as I've written, as I have pled, uh, been pleading to IndyCar, good Lord, bring a new chassis online now that you have an extra year, right? There's no way you're going to make that happen for 2023 if you'd pull yeah. the trigger now. The part that I find frustrating there seems to be no real interest in making a new chassis happen anytime soon. Is it 2025? I don't know. Is it 26? I don't know. But I can tell you that the drivers who have gone out and turned laps in this replicated 2023-2024 car with all that extra ballast in the back uh, where the ERS weight will be found, oh, they have not been happy. It's not going to be good. yeah. So the the part here, Dan, that just stands out is I don't get it and I can't get a straight answer is why there is a lack of energy in seeing that, hey, we got an extra year. Okay, we can do something now. Is it secretly all the team owners have been telling IndyCar, don't do it. We don't we can't afford it. We don't want it. I don't know. But I can tell you, at least for those that I've spoken with, some of them even begrudgingly saying, It's going to cost a lot, but it's going to be silly if we throw a bunch of money into an old car that's going to be obsoleted in a year or two, and then we've got to buy a whole new thing uh, to keep using these new motors. So I just don't get, Dan, why there is no sense of urgency. Could it be? as It's not a supply chain on the manufacturer's side. Like, obviously, IndyCar loves Delara. They're going to get first shot at it. It's not going to be an issue on their side, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And IndyCar has been clear in saying they're not looking for another dance partner. Yeah. It's Delara. Uh, so where I, I hope to learn more in the very near future is, have you at least asked folks to start drawing stuff? Uh, could you put down a couple of virtual lines? Do I need to get you a napkin and some crayons? Whatever it is, tell me. Let's start drawing some lines and getting some things moving. Something... Uh, now, now, Marshall, Marshall, I have to say there, there is a bit of a problem. Actually, it's not a bit. It is a problem right now in the open wheel landscape on the team side. And, and it, it's really simple. Teams are really struggling to hire enough people to field cars. And the series did take a step in the direction of helping the teams by introducing 
um, an industry-wide job board where people that are interested in working in IndyCar racing can post their resume. They can apply for open positions and all the teams have access to this database of personnel. But even with that, even with programs that have budgets to add 10, 15, 30 positions, they're very, very hard to find people to come to work right now. Don't get uh, a degree in music from a liberal arts college in tiny town, Indiana. Dan, Go get Dan, an engineering do, degree from <laughs> Purdue. I should Dan, have done do it. You have, do you have a CDL? <laughs> I don't. I don't. But if I can you get would go get easily. one, if I you can, can back get a trailer one, just the best with the best of them. Hey, those boys from Crawford's on up. If you can't back up a hay wagon, <laughs> you, you haven't lived out here. But if you had a CDL right now, I could have you an interview tomorrow at 8 a.m. to join a top level IndyCar team. Well, I, I'll get to difficult. work on that. I'll get to work on that. Hey, thanks, guys. I'll, I'll, I'll check myself out. I appreciate it. Love y'all. <laughs> See you, Dan. Thank you. But Marshall, it's it's finding young people that are interested in exploring the world of motorsports. It's going to trade schools and finding these young, talented women and men to to look at this as a career, and it's just not happening. And I think part of it is we're talking about the testing today at the Speedway, you know. And a lot of people said, "Hey, where's where's McLaren's third car?" It's been a conversation for years. Where's McLaren's third car? You know, they're scheduled to do a bunch of the testing. Well, they have just enough people in their shop base side of things to run that third car for these tests and not take away from their, their current program. Um, Penske is, is utilizing non-shop based people for their program. Guys like Foyt are barely able to get enough people on staff to go to the racetrack. And so when we're talking about all these new things we're introducing, who has the upper hand in these things? The Ganassi, they're they're spread thin. Penske spread thin. McLaren spread thin. Andretti spread thin. But those are the highest, wealthiest people, right? The human asset. That's those are the ones that are leading that program, and they're struggling. And so, who has time to sit here and mess with fitment projects, build out projects? You know, working on the new engine, how it's going to work in the car, how are we going to bolt it together so it stays together? And IndyCar relies a lot on the teams for those things. You know, they, they say, here's a, here's a box of parts. Here's the paperwork of what it's supposed to be. Let us know when you get it together. We'll come by and check it out. Um, and I think that that's one of the things the teams have, I think, come back to them and said, whoa, we can't do a car and an engine package at the same time. Because we don't have the bandwidth to put it all together and figure it out while we're still going and racing. Uh, how's this? If you can take the time to convert a DW12 and make significant alterations to it to accept a new motor, you can put together a new car. Um, there, there's this is truly about renovating a house and spending a lot of money to renovate an old house that you know you're going to knock down in two years' time. This is exactly what this is, and uh, would say as someone who's had to build. Many, many, many new race cars <laughs> with new engines, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I would be on the shop floor screaming and yelling, saying, what in the world are we doing? Propping up this 12 plus year old chassis and forking out a ton of money and modifying all kinds of things, knowing it's going to be obsoleted soon. We had an extra year we didn't know we were going to have. And we did nothing with it to get a new chassis coming. So, I, again, it's easy for me to say this is someone who doesn't have to pay for it all. I get that. 
but I've spoken with enough people who run teams or own the teams who've said, it's already going to suck. We're already going to have to spend a lot of money to do this. We may as well just go all the way and have all the hurt come at once. But then we have shiny new cars that are designed exactly for this new motor and the, the offset weight distribution, uh, just so I hear you, but at the same time, let's not discount the fact that there's a crazy amount of talented men and women who could just as easily build a new chassis compared to retrofit an old one. Why don't hey, we, I mean, um, on the scale, Marshall, on the scale of, uh, of just being kind of behind the eight ball. And you and I have this conversation a lot, at least I, there's rumors that IndyCar is getting closer to having their own, uh, television show three years later. So we're getting there, man. We are. Why don't we uh, invite Bernard Klepsis Wick? You might be our last questioner, questionnaire of the uh, of the evening. We might do one more. Your uh, your your Twitter bio here says your only goal in life is to own a kayak. First, Bernard, you got to tell us: is that an old line, and you have achieved that, or is it still a life goal you've yet to make come true? Uh, no, I have unfortunately not gotten that kayak yet. <sighs> I kind of forgot that I had that there because when I originally said it, it was a jet ski. But then, <laughs> are, are you just kind of dialing it down? I wish I had a well, I don't waterproof know. I mean, sock. Uh, I mean, we can get you one of those. We, I can get Wheeler to autograph it. Uh, it's going to be amazing. But uh, kidding aside, Bernard, what uh, what do you got for us tonight? Well, I have kind of two questions. I've never worked with a professional race team. My dad has a uh, Formula Ford that we've done some futzing with but over the years. But like my understanding is they basically like disrepair and completely rebuild race cars on regular basis, a regular basis. So how is it so much different to disrepairing and rebuilding a DW12 versus a brand new car? I would say you were really not looking at any difference at all. Uh, the, the areas that would be new would be having to fit things to that DW 25 or 26 or whatever it might be. After many, many years of working with the DW 12, teams will be experienced in, hey, we've got a new side pod, we've got a new floor, whatever it is, they will know the areas they're going to need to look to find and, uh, and massage, polish, make everything fit properly. Um, with a brand new chassis, everyone will be finding the areas where, ah, this is not exactly perfect. We're going to have to modify this just a little bit to fall into place. It's, uh, that's the inevitable part, but yeah, honestly, it's just learning a new toy and how it all goes together and then comes apart. But there's maybe an overarching thing to keep in mind here, Bernard, in that I don't think we're going to see a radically different front suspension package, rear suspension package, uh, uprights, uh, run down the list. I don't think we're going to see a bunch of massively different componentry on the car, except for, again, this energy recovery system that's coming in. There's new cooling, ducting uh, that's needed, some electronics placement of where that stuff is going. I mean, there will be some new parts that come along, but nothing that I would say that would have any mechanics saying, oh my gosh, I need to fly to Italy and spend a month with Delar to figure out how to assemble this thing. I think most teams would get that part sorted out very quickly 
if anything, the only education that's going to have to happen, and Bob, I mean, you saw this in Formula E when it came online. It's not like there were many brand new race car mechanics job day one working Formula E and launch a lot of crew members. The main many of them have had to have learned was the uh, handling and treatment of an ERS system that could make them explode, uh, <laughs> uh, get zapped pretty hard uh, if they did not care for it properly. So that will be a paddock-wide education, Bernard. But as Bob saw when uh, you know calling Formula E and, and being integral in its launch there, that was really the big learning point. But that's, again, not so much chassis uh, side or mechanical expertise. It's, hey, electrification. We haven't had this before. Uh, let's go uh, do a seminar. Well, I mean, they're going to have to. Well, the teams are going to have to learn how to handle the ERS as it is. So, chassis that's existing or new doesn't really change that. Exactly. So, that was the only real thing that's going to be new, whether we're talking about this hybrid engine package going into a DW12 or a DW26 or whatever it is, is going to be the fitment part. If it is a new chassis, which I don't think we're going to. Uh, when this new hybrid package package comes online, uh, but overall, it's just going to be the learning how to handle and interact with um, a lot of live energy. But we've seen it happen in so many racing series, whether it's the FI World Endurance Championship, Formula E, Formula One, etc., Extreme E. Uh, we're, if anything, maybe a little bit late to the game. So I think the education part should be maybe one of the easier aspects. I think the hardest part about a new car honestly comes to like Marshall said the fitment but also the tooling right Marshall so it's it's just and it, and it comes down to that group of fabricators in the shop one of the last art true art forms of automotive racing which is the guys who can look at a part and head back over to the mill and the lathe and pull out a welder and a grinder and and make make the the new part for this or make the new bracket to help install that or because at the end of the day Delara will build a car but you know Delara is only going to actually build like 70% of it and it's going to be on CAD and then it's going to turn into outsource, outsource, outsource. And the first time it actually gets put together won't be until everything's already been built, designed, certified, and sent. And so that's, I think that's on the new one. That's the biggest, the biggest time uh, crunch on that. Amen, brother. Um, Ryan Caminiti, why don't you unmute yourself? Floor is yours, the hashtag racing family show. You get the final question of the evening. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Um, first of all, Bob, I just want to say uh, you spent a lot of time in my living room over the past, you know, 20, 25 years and really appreciate everything you've done. And uh, it's a pleasure to, to hear you wherever, wherever. So appreciate it. Um, thank you very much. You're welcome, sir on this this new car so um i work it i've been i have 25 30 years experience whatever um i currently work for a a rather large life insurance company and we are struggling getting rid of we'll just say servers that are oh i don't know 18 years old um because for whatever reason programs hardware whatever it was never moved off of it because of expense my concern with this new car, new engine thing is um, then potentially staying with the old chassis and being pigeonholed into running it for a number of years. 
Um, and that could be stagnant to growth. The new arrow kit kind of refreshed the, you know, the visual appeal, you know, for, for certain people. And that was a big deal. And, um, you know, this car has been through three, at least visual iterations already. And, uh, you know, safety certainly is a thing. And uh, it's, it's she long in the tooth. You know, I just, I'd hate to see all this hugely positive momentum go up in flames. And we, uh, sh- we share a concern here, Ryan, for that exact point. And Bob, I'd love to get your thoughts on this too, insofar that if IndyCar were to commit to a new chassis, we have a specific date where we know there is going to be a major change. This is a positive step towards the future. If you decide to stay with the old familiar, again, by this year, this chassis is now uh, eligible, beyond eligible for vintage racing. If IndyCar does elect to stick with the DW12 for this 2024 introduction, Bob, do you would you share in the fear here? I think like Ryan was intimating that, Man, if you just decide to not make that change, it sure becomes easier year after year to just keep sticking with it. Well, I mean, and I I hate to cut you guys off and interrupt, but we have a saying, you know, temporary becomes permanent real quick. So anyway. (laughs) Well, I don't know how much life there is of the old girl, how, how many more tweaks you can make to it. Obviously, the concern with new stuff in the largest sense of the word is that it costs everybody a lot of money. Uh, IndyCar is, uh, is in a really good spot right now in terms of, uh, participation, uh, interest, investment, things can always be better, but things are a lot better than they used to be, I think in, in IndyCar. And so bringing on a whole new chassis engine package, as opposed to old chassis, new engine package. Um, I, I, it's hard to predict how much it's going to cut into the, the, the good situation the series finds itself in right now. I mean, you always want new and better. Uh, if there's some kind of breakthrough in design or technology that makes this better and generates more interest in the series because it's something new and different and special, then I'm not against it. Um, I just, I don't have enough information, I guess, uh, to, to say whether the, uh, the DW 12 needs to head for the vintage paddock. Um, I I tend to think if I was just gonna put it out there, I think, I think Indy car will need a new chassis to go with a new engine if it makes financial sense. Or as you were suggesting, Marshall, somebody at least needs to be looking down the road at where we want to go next. That's one of the things that I've been impressed with the folks running Formula E is they're now on their second generation car. The third generation car is coming next year with much enhanced power levels. Um, It's going to be a much quicker car. And the the new chassis, I'm told, is going to be pretty radical. Um, But that's a whole different financial picture than IndyCar. Um, so it, it, you know, it, it's hard to say, I mean, can you afford to go changing things? And if you can, how long do you wait before you do it? 
Bob, do you want to broker a deal between Formula E and IndyCar to sell the uh, the uh, soon-to-be redundant chassis going on right now? We might have <laughs> solved a problem here in the, on the Racing Family Show, Bob. I love it. And we're, we're going to get some uh, money in your pocket here. Before... Yeah, yeah, you want to... Want to go from an old car to an old car? <laughs> hey, but and yet one that's much newer than yes. uh, yeah, yes, the old one here. Well, before uh, my co-host Chris Wheeler takes us home, Bob, you mentioned radio show. You mentioned uh, my racer colleague Chris Medlin doing good work mm-hmm. with him. Yep. Tell folks where they can get uh, lots and lots of Bob Varsha. Uh, okay. Read out where we can find you. Well, on Formula One weekends, I work with the folks at Speed City F1 Radio. We do an hour before the race begins, an hour after it ends. In between, we we throw it to our colleagues from the BBC, my old Formula E partner, Jack Nichols, and ex-driver Julian Palmer and Jenny Gao. Um, they call the actual race. It airs on ESP on... Um, Sirius XM channel 81, which is ESPN Extra, I believe. Um, the, uh, the guys from Speed City also do other radio programs, and we have an expanding lineup. We're going to be doing a midweek show, and um, there's a possibility, however dim down the road, that we might actually get to call Formula One races for the U.S. radio audience. But stand by for that. And before we leave... In case you haven't already heard, uh, on Wednesday, you're going to hear the announcement of the Las Vegas Formula One Grand Prix 2023. I absolutely love it, Bob. And uh, boy, so appreciative of you as a friend, but also as a professional setting the bar so high for idiots like myself and Wheeler. But come on, Marshall. Thank you. No, brother. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being you, Mr. Wheeler. I think it's time to uh, time to say goodbye. And we aren't exactly going to have you sing like Joey Hand was doing earlier, singing "Share" uh, to us. But <laughs> uh, you are officially in charge of taking us home, my brother. Here in the little hashtag Racing Family Show. Well, Marshall, it's that time again on this lovely Monday evening. Of course, Bob. We want to thank you for joining us, and of course, our friend Joey Hand. Got to cover a lot tonight. And, of course, as always, our guests, the ones that, that are out there listening to us right now that like and share and tell all their friends about it. Um, Marshall, a big part of tonight's closing comments were led by Mr. Bob Barsha. And it's the reality that you can't just talk about it. You've got to be about it. If you want to talk about change and you want to talk about impact, you can't just put it on, a, on an infograph and you can't just put it on a flyer or make a hashtag. You've got to follow through with the mission of which you're stating. We've all been guilty at times in our lives of saying how we want something to be different and doing nothing about it. But the only way that we're going to create change of any level in any format is to say what we feel and to actually follow it with our actions and promote those actions to make the change. So that's my closing thoughts. Again, everybody, we thank you so much for joining our program and for liking and sharing. Please come back and tell your friends to come with you. For our awesome sponsors, Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and of course, Cooper Tires, we want to thank them for all the things they do for our hashtag racing family. For myself and my esteemed co-host, Mr. Marshall Pruitt, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time right here on the hashtag racing family.